Good morning, church. One thing I love about the songs we sing is they cover a broad variety of emotions and experiences and truths about our Lord and our relationship to Him. Many are happy and, and just, um, just uplifting songs of praise to God, and then others get down into the nitty-gritty for really thinking about the words. Uh, the, they might touch a nerve with us. It's not a wonderful thing to be called a broken vessel and, and acknowledge that we are broken people. Now, uh, and, and I'm sure, you know, as that last song we sang, we can all relate to it in some way. Our lives can be pretty messy. And as I reflect on my own life, I recognize that much of the mess in my life was self-induced. I'm the cause of many of my own problems. Of course, it's easy to blame and point fingers and, and try to put it on someone else. But if I'm honest with myself, and I think if you're honest with yourself, you'll recognize that we're pretty good at breaking our own vessel and, and messing up aspects of our own life. And as we are studying the book of Samuel, we see that's, that's really where the Israelites are. They, they have a messy life. They have a broken relationship with the Lord, and, and they're finally starting to realize that. They're waking up to the realization that they as individuals and they as a nation are broken. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 7, if you're not already there. Israel is in a bad place, and they know it. They are not right with God. They're experiencing his displeasure because of it, and they need to get right with him. They need to turn back to him. They need to repent. Today we're going to see a wonderful gospel truth on display for us. We're going to see repentance in action. More specifically, we're going to see the posture of repentance, the process of repentance, and the product of repentance. We're going to see the posture of repentance, the process of repentance, and the product of repentance. So let's go ahead and start right away with the posture of repentance. Chris left us off finishing up verse 2 there for us, and I just want to go ahead and reread it again today. 1 Samuel 7, 2 says, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, a lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. It may not even be words. Sometimes a lament is just sounds and groans as we cry out to the Lord. Mark Vrogup describes a lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's a painful prayer, a, a, a prayer, a cry out to the Lord from the hurt in our lives, regardless of where that hurt comes from, from others or from ourselves, that leads us to trust in God. It's not just a cry, it's not just a sob fest, it recognizes that we are not the answer, but God is. And it appears as if Israel has been lamenting for quite some time. They've been crying out to God for quite some time. The passage would indicate that for 20 years, some or perhaps all of the nation has been crying out to God, lamenting of their condition, seeking his help. 20 years of oppression under the hands of the Philistines, 20 years of silence from their God. 
I want you to think about that for a second. 20 years. Think about the last 20 years of your life and all that's taken place there and having radio silence from God. No, nothing from his word, nothing from him, but just your pain and suffering that you're soaking in. Like some of you weren't born 20 years ago. Some of you were still like me in high school 20 years ago. Some of you didn't have adult children or even grandchildren at that point. A lot can happen in 20 years. And 20 years without God is a long, long time. And it's in this state that Samuel decides he's going to address them. They are ready. Their hearts are soft. They're ready to get things right with God. And they are lamenting because they are full of sorrow. They're, They're in dire straits. That's When we go to the Lord, that's when we cry out, that's when we lament, is because our pain is too much. And so the Israelites are there, they are throwing themselves at God's mercy, and they have soft hearts, they have contrite spirits, they have godly grief. This is the posture of repentance. It's when you acknowledge your sin, you recognize your situation, and you throw yourself at God's mercy. I've experienced this a lot myself, unfortunately, having to go through this process of of godly grief. I don't remember all the details of these situations, but I remember many times that my kids did something dumb to upset me, like not go fast enough, and I just ripped into them. I just got angry and frustrated and yelled at them, an adult grown man yelling at a four- and six-year-old for not acting immediately on my timeline. And even in some of those instances, even while the words were coming out of the mouth, I felt this pain and conviction and recognition that what I was doing was wrong, and that led me, sometimes right away, sometimes after some thought and more contemplation on it, to apologize to my kids and make things right with because I knew I was wrong, that my heart had been softened toward my sin. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10, Paul says this to the church there, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So not not all grief is good. Some grief just makes us feel really bad about ourselves. But unless we are soft toward God and recognize that our grief, our sin, our, our chaos in our life puts us at odds with God and leads us to him, that's godly grief, that's good grief. And so once your heart is in that place, you're in a necessary place, you're in a good place, you're in a soft place, you're in the posture of repentance. You are ready to repent. It took the Israelites 20 years before all of them were ready or or God felt their hearts were ready to repent as a nation. 20 years of sorrow, 20 years of suffering to get to that place. And then... They were ready, and Samuel shows up. Samuel shows up in verse 3, and he says this. Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, 
Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. This was no small request that Samuel was making of the people of Israel. He he was telling them to entrust themselves wholly to God. No more worshiping other gods, no more relying on them for provision or protection. Now, here's why this would have been hard for the Israelites. The Israelites had had, um, come to the understanding, like the nations around them, that the Baals and the Ashtoreth were who they needed to appease in order for their crops to grow and for, for them to have a bountiful life, for them to have big families. They, they thought that that was the way they needed to function in their lives, to appease these gods that the other nations around them had been worshiping for centuries. Never mind that the Lord had been with them and provided every need they ever had from the moment they left Egypt to the moment they entered the promised land and even up until this point. But those were fairy tales, right? Those, those were things that happened in Israel's ancient past. It was a long time ago. Surely God wasn't working in their lives the same way he had in their ancestors. They had come to the understanding that they're in Canaan now. They need to worship the gods of the people around them. And so this local superstition had led them to worshiping the Baals and Ashtoreth. And and what Samuel was calling them to was no simple thing. Because this was just, just immersed in their life. This is how they went about their lives was appeasing these gods and offering different sacrifices. And, and the Baals and Ashtoreth were, um, were uh, fertility deities, okay? So it was male and female gods, and the way you were supposed to get blessings from them was to have sexual relations, usually through like a temple prostitute or something like that. And, and in doing so, you would excite the gods so that they would replicate your activity and their sexual activity would produce blessing on your life. But the issue for the Israelites in giving up the Baals, well, it, was, it was about provision. They, they really thought this was how they were blessed. And it was enjoyable. They, they, they probably really enjoyed those forms of worship. And so the issue wasn't for them about giving up sex. It was an issue of trust. Because here, here's the thing. We don't have to give up sex to worship God. In fact, when we, uh, when we enjoy sex the way God has prescribed for us in Scripture, we do worship God. That's an act of worship. So it wasn't necessarily about giving that up, but they did have to give up sex the way they were doing it, prostitutes. And so Samuel tells them to put away these gods. Don't live that way anymore. Don't do those things. He wasn't asking them to put their gods away like you might put away Christmas decorations, you know, for, for later. You might bring them back out. If things aren't working out with God, you know, have them on hand just in case. Hedge your bets. That's not what he's saying by put away or put off. He's saying get rid of them forever. Destroy them. And here's how the people respond when Samuel challenges them to repent in this way. Verse 4, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. 
So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So so here's some genuine repentance by the Israelites. They get rid of their idols. They begin serving the Lord. They go back to worshiping the Lord the way he should be worshiped. And then Samuel calls them together for a little revival. He says, hey, let's, let's get together and commemorate this big change in our lives. We're going to kind of have this, this uh, revival event to recognize the spiritual transformation that's taken place among us. And, and in doing so, they continue to demonstrate their repentance. When they gather together, they, they really do three things. They pour out water, which is, we'll get to that. They fast which is something I think we're familiar with. And then they confess their sins. So these first two, the pouring out of water and fasting, are signifying that they are trusting the Lord for their basic needs. God, we're pouring out water before you because we're recognizing that you provide our most basic need of water. And we're fasting because we're trusting that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need you, Lord. And then the third thing, of course, is they confess. They're genuinely remorseful about their sin. They admit it publicly, and they confess it to each other and before God. It's not lip service. This is genuine, heartfelt expression of guilt before the Lord. And what we see on display from the people of Israel is the process of repentance. They go from a position of of, uh, their heart ready to repent to the actual steps necessary to repent. Repentance isn't a simple thing. It's not simply saying you're sorry. It's not done on a whim. Repentance is intentional, it's purposeful, and there's a process involved. There's multiple things happening in you when you are repentant. It's not just a feeling. It's not just admitting wrong. There's some genuine things taking place in you that lead to changes in your life. You'll notice back in verse 3 that Samuel describes this process. What does repentance look like? Samuel tells us. Verse 3, he says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So, so you see what Samuel says. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, if your repentance is genuine, if it's going to be a complete repentance, here's what you need to do. You need to give your whole self into this process. It's not a feeling. It's not a decision you just make in your head. It's a decision you make at the core of who you are. It's real. It's permanent. It's genuine. It's not lip service to God. Because you know what? You can't fool God. God knows your heart. You can say whatever you want to others. You can say whatever you want to God. But he knows what your heart is really saying and what you are really feeling and what you're really going to do after you say what you say. And if you're sincerely repenting, if you're sincerely giving yourself to God, here's what Samuel says to do. First, genuine repentance puts away. For the Israelites, it was the Baals and Ashtoreths specifically. That's what was taking their hearts from the Lord. When you return to the Lord, you put away that which has taken your heart away from the Lord. You put away your 
idols. So for the Israelites, it probably included physical objects, statues and, and figurines and things like that, but it also included changing their lifestyle. They had to change their lifestyle. They couldn't uh, simply just toss these things in the trash and then continue to trust the Baals. They had to change the way they lived. This, the, the sexual escapades would end as well. And so when we repent, we have to ask ourselves, what has turned my heart away from the Lord? This is what it takes to get into the posture of repentance. We talked about the posture of repentance. This is kind of the the lead up to repentance. You have to know, you have to be sorrowful over, you have to recognize what has drawn your heart away from the Lord. So what are you putting your trust in of God? Samuel says genuine repentance means that you put that away. You get rid of it. You, you, you don't put it aside so that you might come back to it later if things don't work out. You sever your relationship with it. Now, depending on, on what's drawn your heart away from the Lord, it, it might look very different. I know a, a guy who was disgusted with the things that were coming into his home through his television. And, and, and so to remove the temptation from himself and his family, he took his television out into the garage and intentionally put a sledgehammer into it. And they went for years without a television in their home. I know another guy who who for years, when he could have had a smartphone, they were available, everyone else had them, for years had a flip phone, a dumb phone, because he didn't want to carry temptation around in his pocket. Another man who, um, when confronted with his inappropriate relationship with a coworker, decided to leave his job because he knew if he continued to work with that coworker, he would constantly be tempted and probably fall back into that sin. I know a family who committed themselves to not doing any kind of sports activities that involved Sundays because they knew they would probably get into the habit of choosing the sports over fellowshipping with God. And so they just said, we're not, gonna, we're not even going to sign up for those sports because we don't want to have to make that choice each and every week because they knew where their hearts were going to lead them more often than not. And so if you struggle with greed, maybe you need to to, to do something about mitigating that in your life. And, and maybe you struggle with, because of your greed, giving. And so you need to set up online giving, kind of so it's automatic. And so you're not tempted to not write that check or forget your offering that you intended to give, but your greed prevented you from giving. Maybe you live in fear and you need to shut off the media because you're you're filling your life with fear instead of trusting the Lord. Or maybe in order to get validated, you go online and, and, and you, you, uh, you go to social media instead of going to God to feel validation and to know uh, who you are in Christ. And so maybe you need to shut off Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat in order to do that. Maybe you don't know what your idols are. Maybe you're, you're not really sure what's drawing your heart away from the Lord, and, and you just need to pray a prayer, pray a prayer like these words of this old hymn. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Help me tear it from thy throne. Lord, I don't know what my idol is. 
I don't know what's drawing my heart away from you, but you do. You're on, you're on the throne of my life right there. You know, you know what's occupying that. Help me figure out what that is and help me oust it. So ask God to show you your idols. Ask him to reveal the most sinister ones. Ask him to, to show you which ones are creeping up the steps to his throne that are going to draw your heart away from him. Putting away is a drastic process of removing from your life what is drawing your heart away from the Lord. And what you need to put off is going to depend on what draws your heart away from him. And what I need to put off depends on what I am going to instead of God. But putting off is only the beginning. That's where Samuel says to start. We don't just put away but we also direct our hearts to the Lord. We put away our idols and we direct our hearts to God. There are a lot of ways you can do this. We talk about these a lot. They're they're kind of obvious, but we don't always think of them or go to them because of our idols. But when you put away your idols and you direct your heart to God, here's some things that are gonna help you direct your heart to God. You can just spend time in God's word reading God's word, memorizing God's word, thinking about God's word, meditating on it, writing about it, journaling, or or jotting down questions, talking about God's word with other believers. You can spend time just talking to him. You know, this is one of those things that I I tend to hold things inside and let them eat at me. And, And I'm learning in my own life, I just need to immediately take it to the Lord in prayer. Not wait until that evening when I'm praying before bed or that the next morning when I'm spending time with the Lord. I need to just take it to the Lord each and every moment throughout my day. Just give it to him. Get it off my chest and let him deal with it. Another way you can direct your heart to God is spend time with God's people. So when God's people are gathered together, be there. So Sunday mornings when we get together to hear his word, be here. When... when, when, uh, you're throughout your week, get involved in a community group. Be a part of a smaller group of believers who are going to be able to come alongside you and encourage you and support you and know your struggles and be able to challenge you to put them away and direct your heart to God. Growing up, we had a family verse. We actually kind of used it as a password of sorts. I can tell you more about that some other time. But for the sake of how I learned it, here it is in the King James Version. Okay, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. I'm sure you've heard that one before. Direct your heart to God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust anything else. Trust him. Go to him. Acknowledge him in everything you do. That means all day, every day. Acknowledge the Lord. Go to the Lord. See things his way. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Samuel gets to this as well. Notice what it says. If you do that, he will direct your paths. Other versions say he will make your paths straight. That's the promise. God will bring about blessing, deliverance in your life when you... Turn yourself over to him. And if you um, read one more verse, 
in addition to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, if you read verse 7, it's the same truth in a different way. It says, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Don't, don't go through this life thinking you got it figured out. Go with God. Go with his way. Trust his way. Trust, trust what he says is the way you need to go and depart from evil. Turn from evil and go God's way. That's really what repentance is. Repentance is turning. It's turning from your sin, from your way of doing things, from, from your way of thinking what's right and good and, and should happen in this world and recognizing that it's not. And instead, it's going, God, you are good and you are right and I need to follow you. That's what repentance is. That's, that's putting away your idols and directing your heart toward God. They're really two sides of the same coin. It's the same action. You don't turn from one sin. It's not just turning, because you could turn from one sin to another sin. You could turn from another sin to another idol, and another one to another idol. It's turning from all of those things to the Lord. Both need to take place. Now, Samuel doesn't say it here, but we saw the Israelites do it in verse 6. That's when the people confess their sins. So we, we confess with our mouth. We admit publicly to God, to others, what we've done. And we, do also, we also confess with our actions, right? In that turning to the Lord. Now the third thing that Samuel says to do in the repentance process is then serve the Lord. Serve the Lord only. We are to only serve the Lord. It's just, it's really a natural progression of the first two, right? You put these things away, you turn to the Lord, and you do things his way. You serve him. You live your life for God. You walk according to his ways. And, and when you turn to him, you're really able to serve the Lord his way. If you're not oriented toward God, you can't really serve him. You have to orient yourself to him before you can serve him. And if you see the world the way God sees it, then you're going to start to see how you can serve him the way he wants you to serve him. And when you're serving the Lord, you're not serving yourself anymore. You're not really even serving your family in the, anymore, although those things happen by serving the Lord. He, he wants what's best for you. He wants what's best for your family. And, and here's another beautiful thing about serving the Lord. You can serve the Lord in every area of your life. Every area of your life, you can serve the Lord. You don't have to quit your job to serve the Lord. You don't have to move to serve the Lord. Serving the Lord isn't so much about what you do as much as how you do what you do. That the way you do things in service to the Lord is far more significant than the specific things that you do. Now, don't get me wrong. There are things you can do that in no way are of service to the Lord. Like going to a prostitute, there's just no way you can serve the Lord in that action. Those things we're putting off. But everything else that's not sinful, that's not wrong, that's not in opposition to God, all those things can be done in service to the Lord. It's about our heart orientation. Let me give you a, a simple illustration of this. Uh, this is going to sound silly, but believe it or not, I've had conversations like this. Okay, Christians like to analyze what other people are doing instead of 
taking the log out of our own eye, right? We like to look at what others are doing. We like to go, well, if I were in his shoes, I'd do it this way, right? And so we might, we might look at somebody who has a, 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 an acreage, right? A big lawn, and they spend hours mowing their lawn. And someone might say to me, hey, look at Tommy over there. He's, he spends five hours a week mowing his lawn, caring for his lawn, and what a waste of time, what a waste of resources. That time and, and money and energy could be better spent doing this, this, or this, right? Maybe you've had a similar conversation about something else with somebody. And, and on the surface level, you might go, you know what? Yeah, I, I, I can see that. But we don't, the thing is, we don't know what Tommy's doing with his time on that lawnmower. Maybe he's, he's got his ear, ears plugged in. And he's listening to scripture, and he's just meditating on scripture. And he's spending five hours on his lawnmower, just praising the Lord, soaking in scripture, learning about him. Or maybe he's spending that five hours just praying for his church or doing heart work, right? He's just having conversations with God about his own heart and his own relationship with the Lord. Maybe he's praying for you. Maybe he's praying for our leadership. Maybe he's praying for our world. It's not the lawn mowing that's wrong. It's what you do with the lawn mowing, right? Now, there are, there are ways you can serve yourself in everything you do, and there's ways you can serve the Lord in everything you do. Again, my point in all of this is that serving the Lord is an orientation. It's an orientation of your heart in everything we do rather than the tasks themselves. And you're able to serve the Lord. Your heart is oriented right when you are focused on him. And what Samuel goes on to say to the people of Israel is when you repent, when you turn, when you direct your heart to the Lord, when you serve him only, he will direct your paths. He will bring about reward in your life. Particularly for the people of Israel, it was deliverance from the Philistines. Take a look again at verse 3. Okay, and we're, we're hammering Verse 3, right? You're like, okay, can we move on from verse 3? There's a whole lot more here in the passage. But this is, this is what uh, I'm going to start calling a pinata verse, where you just keep hitting it and hitting it over and over until you get all the candy from it, right? Okay, so there's so much in here. Here's what Samuel says to the people of Israel. He says, and he gets to what we call the product of repentance, the result of our repentance. He says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, before we get to the obvious result, before we get to the obvious benefit, repentance, which is the last thing he says, I don't want us to miss the the biggest benefit of repentance. I almost missed it in this passage. You see it in other passages in scripture. I almost missed it here. And so I want us to look at the first thing he says. He says, if you're returning to the Lord. See, the, the biggest benefit we get out of repentance is God himself. There's a relationship implied. If you're returning to the Lord, you get God. That's number, benefit number one of repentance is you get the perfect, holy, righteous God who knows what's best for you. He knows you better than anyone, and he can do something about it. That's number one. Secondly, in addition, 
an additional benefit of returning to the Lord, especially if you already know the Lord, is deliverance. It's deliverance. He rescues you out of the trouble your sin has got you into. He delivers you from that. It's salvation. If you've repented never, or sorry, never repented before, it's salvation for the first time, right? You get delivered for the first time. And every time you go to the Lord after that, he delivers you from whatever trouble you've gotten yourself back into. And so we see on display here, really in the rest of the chapter, the, the product of repentance. And so the, the Philistines in verses 7 through 11, the Philistines hear about what's going on and, uh, and uh, what takes place is that they, they, they decide, hey, there's a rebellion afoot and they, they, they start to come at the Israelites and Mizpah and the Israelites start to worry a little bit. They freak out and they cry out to Samuel, pray to the Lord to protect us. They don't ask for the ark to be brought out. They don't cry out to the bales. They don't scatter and run. They don't even trust their own strength. They just said, Samuel, pray that God will deliver us. And that's what God does. He shows up and he delivers them. He rescues them. And in verse 12, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. And he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. Till now, the Lord has helped us. He didn't say the Lord has helped us now. He said, till now. What I think Samuel is saying is God's always been with us. He's always been helping us. Part of his help was allowing us to go through 20 years of misery so that we would repent and turn back to him. Because God's been with them since they left Egypt, through the wilderness for 40 years, coming into the promised land, allowing them to overtake the promised land, and even now with the Philistines, he has delivered them. This is one of those spiritual markers. It's a memorial stone. He calls it Ebenezer, and, uh, which means stone of help, right? I don't know how big the stone was, but it must have been significant enough that when people passed by it, they would see that stone is set up as a reminder that God not only helped us now, but has been helping us. Because when you look back and you see God's faithfulness, here's a memorial stone for us, right? We can see how God helps his people all throughout scripture. We know that he's going to help us in the future. We can trust that he's going to see us through the darkest of times. And so we have all kinds of those things in the church today. We have baptism, which every time someone gets baptized is a reminder of our salvation and God's promise to be with us. We have communion, which we take regularly as a reminder of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. We celebrate things like Easter and Christmas and Thanksgiving as ways to remind ourselves that God is for us and he is going to save us. And then in verses 13 to 17, I'll go ahead and read these. We see that God continues to do so. He continues to deliver them. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So they had they're safe on every side. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, 
And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. So God has delivered Israel from the Philistines. He continues to be faithful to the people of Israel and and protecting them on all sides under Samuel's faithful leadership. We get to see, this is kind of a summary of it. We're going to see Samuel for a few more chapters and, uh, and, and what takes place here. But this is a reminder that God delivered them and continues to provide for them. But it started when they turned their hearts back to the Lord. It started with repentance. And that's what Samuel did for the people of Israel, right? His goal was to turn their hearts back to the Lord, challenge them to repent. And that's what I'm doing for us here today. Some of you in this room have likely never repented before. There's no doubt in my mind that maybe some in this room have never done that before. You've never turned from your way and said, God, I'm going to live your way. And today you, you have an opportunity to do that because you've heard what repentance looks like. You can see it here in Scripture. You can hear it spoken to you because if you've never done that before, if you're still living your way, Ephesians tells us you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And here's the thing. The way you're able to repent, it's not because of anything you do. It's not because you muster up the, the willpower to do so. The reason you're able to repent is because Jesus Christ died on the cross and made it possible for you to do so. That's what enables you to recognize your sin and to be able to turn from it and have have victory over it and give your life to God. And I hope you wrestle with that today. I hope you challenge yourself to that today. And if you do so today, I want to hear about it. I'd love to rejoice with you and and help you see what that life looks like of serving the Lord for the very first time. But here's the thing. The rest of us have done that. We've done that. At least once in our life, we've turned from our sin, and we have given our lives to God. But that doesn't mean we don't have reason to do it again, and again, and again, and again. In fact, Martin Luther reminds us that the life of believers is one of repentance. If you're familiar with the 95 Theses, the first one says this, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, and then he quotes something Jesus says, but it's in Latin, so I didn't feel like that was going to be helpful to us. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Jesus knew repentance doesn't happen one time, Repentance happens regularly in the life of a believer because we're prone to wander. We're prone to turn our hearts away from the Lord. We're still in these bodies of flesh. We're still battling sin. We have victory over it, but we keep being drawn back to it. We keep letting things creep up to the throne and even get on the throne sometimes. And so church, we need repentance We need to do it regularly. We need to actively be involved in our lives and recognizing the idols of our heart that are drawing us away from the Lord. 
And I think we often sense these urges in our life when we recognize that things are wrong. I hope that's happening today through the preaching of God's word. And that's the Holy Spirit in your life saying, something's not right, something needs to change. And when that happens, when you feel that tug, when a brother or sister in Christ challenges you on that and recognizes something in your life that's not right, you need to take that opportunity to turn to from that. That's how Jesus challenges the church in Ephesus in, in Revelation 2. Uh, he, he calls them to remember and repent and return. Now, I gave you three Ps, and here's three R's, but they're really the same thing. Remember, repent, and return. See, see what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. He says, but I have this against you. This is a church. This is actually, if you look through, uh, there's actually a letter Paul writes to the Ephesians. It's a really strong and healthy church at one point. Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The church needs to repent. Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. That's the posture of repentance, right? Remember what your relationship with the Lord should look like and recognize that it's not. Repent, turn from your idols, direct your heart to the Lord, and then do the works you did at first. Serve him only. Remember, repent, and return. If not, Jesus says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there's also a warning in repentance. If we don't repent, we don't get the blessings of repentance. And at some point, we no longer shine brightly like the church in Ephesus was meant to. Our lampstand is removed. And, and at some point in history, the church in Ephesus ceased to exist. There's no more church in Ephesus for a while. And I don't know when and how long or what that looked like for them, but their lampstand eventually was taken away. And so Jesus is saying this to a church. The church is made up of individuals. And so for in order for a church to repent, for in order for a church to be productive, in order for a church to have deliverance, the individuals who are part of that church need to repent. And so church, we never outgrow the need to turn our hearts to the Lord. 